Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Lauren Euler, whose debut novel, Fake Accounts, is out now from Catapult. Lauren's essays on books and culture have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, London Review of Books, The Guardian, New York Magazine's The Cut, The New Republic, Book Forum, and elsewhere. Born and raised in West Virginia, she now divides her time between New York and Berlin. I do sort of resist genuinely the idea that I, as a person online, or I, as a writer, have to tell you something about myself. Why do you need to know my backstory? <laughs> my backstory. Fake Accounts begins just after Donald Trump's inauguration, as our narrator, an unnamed young woman who shares biographical details with Lauren, discovers that her boyfriend is a popular, anonymous internet conspiracy theorist. She plans to end the relationship, which was floundering anyway, but a bizarre turn of events changes everything before she has the chance. Now is as good a time as any to mention that this is a book unsuitable to summarizing. There are some spoilers in the last few minutes of our conversation, but don't worry, we give you fair warning. The narrator moves to Berlin and begins an aimless expat life, online dating and trying out different personas on most everyone she meets until, eventually, the unresolved questions around her boyfriend come back around. The narrator is both charming and untrustworthy, as she provokes and prods at issues of trust, identity, and power. Euler excels at depicting this, as well as the extremely online way of a certain type of New York media millennial, and at poking holes in the many performances that all of us act out, to others and ourselves. Lauren and I talk about all of this here, social media, autofiction, our various efforts to be understood online and on the page. We also discuss real versus fake vulnerability, doing the work of interpreting, and how the artifice of the novel form is part of its power. And, of course, we talk a little bit about being from West Virginia and the impact our home state has on us as writers. At WMFA's Patreon page, we talk about Lauren's reading habits as a writer and a critic. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Um, it's funny, I, I finished the book you know, uh, a week or so ago. And then I was, it, it's sort of the the kind of social media ephemera kind of quality is is sort of messing with my head as well. Like I'm trying to like, as I'm trying to put it back together, I'm like, I kind of feel like I sort of like fever dreamed it or something. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but but I wanted to start um, maybe with with too big of a topic, but hopefully we can winnow it down into something that's, that's worth talking about. But I kind of wanted to talk to you about um, the idea of sincerity, because uh, something that, that really struck me over and over again with this narrator was um, just how, I don't know, I, I felt this kind of um, I felt this kind of sympathy for her and in the way that she um, felt or manufactured or presented feeling this need to be so performative all the time. I think that she is a sort of sympathetic, you know, she's, I, people like to say that she's unlikable, <laughs> unlikable. And I have sort of acquiesced to that and then like regretted it later, I think, because um, I think what, what is so, you know, interesting or fascinating about characters like this, who, and, and it's the, it's the sort of narrator that I always am drawn to in fiction as well, is that they're extremely likable. They're extremely charming. Um, they're like a little bit naughty and they are performing for you. Right. Um, so 
she, I think that she gets a little bit trapped in this sort of performance that she's giving both to the reader, but more specifically to um, the people in her life, right? So she does have this sort of desire to have a sincere or authentic, quote unquote, or or a genuine interaction um, with the people around her, but they sort of resist it at every turn. And a lot of the ways that they do that are in the ways that they respond to her jokes, right? Like they don't, let her sort of express herself in the way that she wants to, right? So there's all these instances where people are like not getting her jokes or when she'll say, she'll say, she'll make a joke and they'll say the joke is indicative of your inner pain and you need to go to therapy. Um, she, I think she does try to be sincere in her own way and people are often rejecting it because they want a certain kind of like easy narrative from her, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. That makes me think of um, late in the book, um, uh, the character who she meets in Berlin, who asks her if she's been sexually assaulted and and kind of seems to want this very specific uh, sort of experience and, and kind of cycle of... Um, of, of emotional reckoning with the experience um, and kind oh, yeah. of keeps trying to shove her down this sort of shoot of like, well, but then didn't you feel this way? And don't you think that this, this now and that, that kind of thing. Right. And I think that there's this general sense when I was writing the book, I felt this and I still feel this now. And, and it doesn't, I wouldn't say that it comes from social media, but I think it comes from this like extremely mediatized life that we all live where we, we are very aware of the news at all times and also aware of all of our friends and acquaintances reactions to the news and the sort of apparatuses that are attached to the news, which is like the think piece, the sort of like the sort of erudite think piece that's now popular now, which is like kind of like a mini essay that involves some kind of psychoanalysis or feminist analysis or, or whatever applied to any kind of cultural or political news. Right. Um, and I think she's when she's in that scene in Berlin. So just some background. The book is about a woman who discovers her boyfriend's a conspiracy theorist. Uh, and before she can break up with him, something happens. And then she moves to Berlin and becomes a sort of pathological liar of her own. And she does it in this very banal way, which is that she makes up different personalities with everyone she meets, including these sort of new friend acquaintances she has in Berlin, as well as um, a bunch of okay Cupid dates. And she has this friend named Nell, who is an artist and who's sort of genuine and, and sort of nice, right? She doesn't do anything, you know, cruel to the narrator. She does. She doesn't harm her in any way, but she speaks to her as if she already knows her. One element of that is is that she, they're talking about the news and Nell has decided she's not going to read the news anymore because it's not um, serving her anymore. And the narrator is sort of sort of uh, taken aback by this and doesn't really know how to respond because she's she's attempts to sort of see it from Nell's perspective. And she's like, well, yeah, of course, like what benefit does the world receive from my knowing about what's going on in the world? Actually, nothing has changed by my knowledge and my awareness contributes nothing. So, so maybe she's kind of right, but then she sort of starts not hammering her, but sort of presuming a lot of things about the narrator in this conversation about sexual assault. And the narrator wants to resist that in various ways. And I think too, when they first meet that Nell says to her, 
you're a writer, right? And she says, and the narrator is very sort of taken aback by this because she she hasn't told her that she's a writer. So there's this like weird sort of eerie, like not gaslighting thing going on a lot between the characters in the book, but there's this sort of anticipation thing where everybody seems to know things about each other, about each other in this kind of slant, disturbing way. Right, right. Which is, I mean, which is not unfamiliar to anybody who spent time, significant time on social media, right? Of like, and not necessarily always in, in, in the way that it manifests in the, in the book, but this sense of um, a sort of false intimacy or like a false understanding of people that just has come from like following them on Twitter. Right. And it's not totally false, right? Like I know quite a lot about the people that I follow on Twitter and, and in ways that if you brought up the things that you knew about them in person, it would be very strange, right? Because right. I've, I've never met Hannah or whatever, but if I saw her at a party, I would have to say, oh, like, how's your child, you know? And nobody really knows how to um, go about having those interactions um, because they feel strange, even though they feel very natural when you're going through it, I think, on the internet. Right. And I think, too, that the narrator of the book often sort of regrets in various ways having put so much of herself in the world in a, in a sort of way that could be manipulated or misunderstood and she sort of reacts to that in various ways one of which is trying to manipulate it and misunderstand it herself <laughs> you guess you could say right. <laughs> yeah I um it made me think as I was reading, you know, there was um, there was a period in producing the podcast where I was making these little mini episodes that would um, just be like really short kind of like audio essays about sort of writing issues that I was going through at the time. And usually they were kind of like mental blocks or like psychological issues. And and I stopped doing them for a few different reasons. But but one of the one of the things that I realized that I came to realize about my doing them that kept being underscored for me when I was reading fake accounts is I, it, it was how much it felt to me like this, um, like this sort of facade of vulnerability. Like I was being vulnerable, but only to a point and not really being vulnerable about things that felt vulnerable to me. Like I had no problem really talking about what I was talking about. And so is that really something that that you're sharing in a kind of, you know, tender way, like you, that you're really opening yourself up to something. And, and I kind of felt that with the narrator too, you know, she has these very, these very high level intellectual kind of discursive moments that are brilliant. And like the observations that that you are making and that she is making, you know, are brilliant, but, but you do kind of feel like um, she's keeping you away from something else. Yeah, absolutely. And I think she's probably keeping herself away from something else. But what I think is interesting, and I never really like, I hope that the end of the book, like, turns that into something, right, into a sort of a point, I hate to say argument about novels, because they don't really have arguments. But there is a sort of something, ha you know, something happens with, with that attitude that reveals its drawbacks, I guess. But I had, I, you know, I see, I always saw her as being 
quite clearly vulnerable, but not declaring it, right? And I think when I think about vulnerability or I think about intimacy, um, which are related, I think of them as something that is um, latent and not necessarily declared. So it's basically what you're saying, right? Like if you're declaring, if you're declaring your vulnerability to me, I am quite distrustful that you actually feel vulnerable about it. Right. Right. Um, And I think that like intimacy develops by sort of letting yourself be interpreted by someone else over time and interpreting them over time, not Mm. necessarily by, you know, having someone say to you, this is my pain and I'm going to explain to you (laughs) as if, you know, I'm writing a sort of therapy, a therapist report about me, like what is going on in my head. Um, And I think there's certainly something about social media that encourages those kinds of disclosures. um, And it encourages a sort of like unearned confidence about oneself as well that I Mm -hmm. think I Mm -hmm. want to resist. And I think when I was thinking about this character in particular, I didn't want her to reveal any sort of deep, like biographical details, but also like not really reveal a lot about her backstory and her life so that you really sort of have to take something away from her by reading her. Right. Yeah. Can you, can you say a little bit more about that? I think that's a really interesting um, next jumping off point. Sorry. I'm trying to stop using the word interesting, which I've, which I like know doesn't actually mean anything, but sometimes it's just like the really most convenient word like at the front of your mind, you know? I can tell that people are there are sort of resisting and that there's going to be a backlash to the word interesting, but I use it all the time. And I think it's super useful because like the opposite is what boring, uninteresting. Um, And and I think that, you know, that's a very good dichotomy to work under certainly like much better than other dichotomies we can use. So when I was thinking about the book, I wanted the narrator to seem like she's talking to you. Like I wanted her to, to do it in a very sort of natural way, right? Like not in the way that um, in the sort of second half of the book, she's going on her first sort of okay Cupid dates and she is taken aback by the experience because she doesn't like that she has all of this knowledge about the other person front loaded, right? Mm-hmm. So she, it's very awkward to have these dates if you've ever been on one where you're like, oh, so I heard you like um, Fleetwood Mac or whatever. <laughs> and it's strange to be telling a complete stranger that you know all this stuff about them. Um, because usually, you know, you might find out that someone likes Fleetwood Mac because you're at a bar together and a Fleetwood Mac song comes on. And it just comes in a much more like a not neat kind of narrative, right? So I wanted I wanted the reader to be forced to like read the character rather than have the character sort of lay out who she is and how she works. Because I think that if you were meeting her, just as if I were meeting you, you wouldn't say, you know, Mm -hmm. hi, I'm Courtney and I grew up here and this is my, you know, these are my likes and dislikes and and these are my um, weaknesses. And my mother was like this and my father was, you know, that's not how you get to know someone. so I see that as a sort of challenge, I think, particularly because we're so used to people front-loading all this information about themselves, not just on dating apps, but also on social media in general, right? And it's very disturbing to me, and I assume it is for lots of people as well, to like know so much about complete strangers. I would love to approach that from a craft angle as well, because part of what I was thinking about as you were saying that was tying it to, you know, the novel project that I'm working on. And there's, you know, the, the, the scene I'm in right now is a big 
sh the the interiority pulls way back um from pretty much everything else i've written from from other characters um when it's been when it's been their sort of limited third person point of view and it's very difficult actually to kind of to write somebody as I mean, I say that actually like surprise writing is difficult, big takeaway from today's episode, yeah. but like, yeah. you know, it's especially tricky to, I think, thread that needle of, especially as, as we have here where you are in her interior so much, but you're still, there's like an inner interior that you're not getting. I don't know. I imagine there was kind of a lot of like drifting into maybe more revealing than you wanted to do and, and pulling back or was there like a discovery process with that? Um, I think that I always thought of her as being in public, like aware of her status as the narrator of a novel. I think there's something inherently limiting both about first person. I think some where a lot of writers go wrong with the first person is having them narrate in a way that is not <laughs> to narrate things that are not possible, right? Like, you have to if you're doing a first person narrator you have to keep it in their perspective so i think that i found that pretty helpful in terms of like keeping the perspective in this weird space which is sort of very intimate but not at all intimate you know i i think at points there was temptation to have her sort of reveal things about herself but i really didn't want there to seem like there's a sort of simple cause for her behavior, right? Like I didn't want it to, I wanted it to be, this is just sounds so basic and stupid, but I really wanted to be realistic. Um, and lots of sort of bizarre things happen in the book, but I was really hoping to keep the book feeling like anything in this book could happen. And if we're describing something that is unbelievable or unrealistic, that is how you experience something that is unbelievable in life, right? Um, so I think because of that, she has to like explain herself a little bit more. And, and by having to explain herself, it gets this sort of diabolical texture that it has, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because she does seem like she's making justifications. But also, I think, to go back to the question of vulnerability, I do sort of resist genuinely the idea that that I as a person online or I as a writer have to tell you something about myself, right? Like, why do you need to know? Why do you need to know my backstory? My backstory. Uh, the currency on social media is personal narrative, I think. And you can see that in really tiny things too, which is to say like, if you write an article and you, you post it, I wrote this about this and I felt this about it, you're going to get a lot more quote unquote engagement than if you just post the article with a sort of bland description. Like it, there, it's the same way that if ads always perform better if you have a human a, a hand or something in them. So something a human. Right. right. Um, and I think on social media, it's the same way. Like people really want like an indication of the real human behind the posts or, or whatever. Um, and I totally understand that because I have those impulses as well. But as a human, I don't want to like be giving so much of myself away to these random strangers who can't be trusted to interpret it in the most generous way. Right, right. It's really interesting. That is a thread that kind of has come up in a few different conversations recently on the show about like, um, kind of taking it offline, actually, but just about how much you care to know about uh, the creators of works 
that you enjoy. And and I'm just kind of the total opposite. Like I want to know, I want to know everything about it, but I want to know everything about everybody all the time. So I don't know if it quite is like, maybe it's not really um, specific to, to, you know, and it's not necessarily because I'm trying to like create some kind of like pathology about their work. I'm just, I just want to know more, you know? Oh Yeah. I totally want to know as well. I think it's completely natural impulse that I have as well. But I think something that I'm really interested in while I was writing this book and and when I just think about social media and also when I think about criticism, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a critic as well, is this is reciprocity and really just sort of like, well, if I don't want to, to, to give myself away basically for my readers, then I should not expect um, Rachel Casper, whomever to do that as well. And, and you might, you, someone might have done that already and then regret it or done it and felt fine about it. Right. I think everybody has this sort of different, um, perspective on the role of the author and the age of the internet. Um, but to me, I think it's a very interesting problem. And I also think that this is why auto fiction and sort of, um, books that bring, that explicitly utilize the author themselves in some way, um, is why those sorts of genres are so popular right now, because I think we're really used to having this sort of unstable figure on social media and before social media, really on reality TV, right? Like we're used to having this like fictional, non-fictional presence in our lives. And so the novelist who is using their life in some way Mm -hmm. is kind of, you know, or using themselves and putting themselves in a sort of, in a story that may or may not be true is quite similar, I think, to the sort of Twitter user who is sort of making bombastic declarations or like publishing like kind of takes that aren't quite real, you know, you know, because increasingly you're always going to Google the author of the book that you're reading. Right. And you're always going to find things that, change your perspective on them right or in some cases i have this too actively avoiding where it's like i really like your work i have a feeling i don't like you as a person so i'm gonna just close the curtain so that like i can keep like my respect for the work intact right yeah i mean it's sort of horrifying and it's sort of horrifying to have done all of that you know not thought about what the internet was when i was 15 or 16 or when i was in college writing for the college newspaper like I didn't really think about how like all my listicles that I wrote when I was 22 are going to be on the internet forever. And like people can Google them, (laughs) you you know, and it's really unfortunate, but there's also just nothing that I can do about it. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what are your feelings about terms like autofiction and this kind of like, I always have this sort of armchair reaction of like, I know that there are male examples, but I feel like it always gets thrown onto women writers in a kind of degrading way. And so I'm always just sort of like, I don't know, I always cringe at it a little bit, but I also like a lot of like, and I know you've written about some of these books as well. Um, Like I love Sheila Hetty. I love, I love writers like that who can kind of collapse those ideas or play with those ideas. Um, but I've also read you in in interviews um, promoting the book kind of like express frustration at like having to reckon with that as a as a concept with, you know, when you're talking about this book. Oh, yeah. I mean, I am totally fine with it as a concept. I like it as a as a it's, I guess it's kind of a genre uh, as a form, you might even I might even be better described as a form. I think it's very interesting. I think 
that it's so misunderstood and that I just dread <laughs> that I just dread sort of like being misunderstood because people have so many different ideas about what it is. And it's actually, you know, pretty simple. Um, the term was coined in the seventies, uh, by a French writer and his definition was just that um, it's, it's a novel where the main character has my name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you can definitely argue as with any sort of academic abstract term, right? Like your definition of feminism might be different from my definition of feminism. That doesn't mean that either of them is wrong, but, but we're both writers. So we're in the business of um, coming up with new ways to say things, but I think of it now as any any fictional work that creates explicit um, uh, confusion or conflation between um, one of the characters, ideally the main character, probably the main character and the author. And something that I think is interesting about it is that a lot of writers who definitely do it based on this definition um, uh, reject it, right? Like there's this very funny video of Knausgaard um, doing an interview and and he says nobody thinks about autofiction less than me um but he is really i think like if you want to understand what it is at you and you should read those books because those books in the end are about the writing of those books and the reception of carlo vicknausgaard and the books that he wrote there's this a heightened desire to understand like what's behind the thing that we're reading And like ostensibly it's easier than ever before to like learn about the author. Right. Right. Um, So it's harder to sort of justify pretending doing this sort of classic fictional thing where you're like, I'm I've sat down to like write some characters, you know? Um, And I use this, I use this Rachel Cuss quote all the time and all sorts of things, but she's always saying that fiction is fake and embarrassing. Um, And I think Sheila Hetty says this as well. And I understand where they're coming from, but maybe we'll get over that and just get back to, I haven't read Rachel Cusk's new novel, um, but I'm excited to see what she's doing after this, the trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have two things I want to shoot off from, from what you just said. The first is that um, I think the way that you were kind of talking about or defining autofiction um, brings up some, some really great parallels with, obviously the book and and kind of social media culture in general, which is just this idea of wanting to be understood and then, or being misunderstood. Like there's just this constant, like putting yourself out there and then like having no control over how you're being perceived because obviously it's the internet, but also there's no real human exchange happening in the sense of like, you say a thing and I'm like, wait, what? That sounds kind of fucked up. What are you saying? And you're like, no, 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 this is what I mean. You know, it's just like, yeah. it's like the internet is built on these like bold pl- proclamations of just like, here's my hot take, my, you know, 140 character hot take. And so I think like that, I, I guess I'm just adding on to to everything you're saying. I think it makes sense that there is this assertion of like, no, this is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I think too that it's it's a sort of fantasy or illusion to think that like it's only social media that creates this these misunderstandings, and that like if we all you know, and I think social media is very interesting to me because of the scale it allows you to experience other people simultaneously, right? Because you can just see so many different things basically at once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Many people will see one will see an input of some sort and just have radically different interpretations of it. Not even their opinions about it, but like what they think it said. A, a piece of writing says, 
I was reading someone's threats, a writer's thread or something about reviews or whatever. And I feel this way too, which is that someone, someone had tweeted something. I can't even remember, but, but someone else said, replied that day his book came out, he got a review that said the paragraphs were too short and another review that said the paragraphs were too long. Um, and, and this is my experience as well. Like there will be sort of basic factual things about the novel that like two critics will say the opposite thing about. So if you waste enough of your time trying to get the sort of um, off the cuff opinions of others, you can kind of arrive at an equilibrium and just decide what you think and then just ignore the people that you disagree with and, and accept the people that you do agree with. Uh, But then at the same time, you know, that is a critique of how social media works, right? Like you're in a bubble, you don't have to listen to anyone you don't agree with. Right. Right. It makes me think of this, this tweet I saw I don't even know when, a few days ago, time is meaningless. So somebody was just like, uh, I don't actually even know who it was. It was just somebody who like got liked enough that the algorithm like put them in my like literary Twitter feed. And it was like, um, books shouldn't have page numbers here. Am I doing it right? Because it's just like, <laughs> everybody is like, and you know exactly the writers that come to mind that just do these like, um, you know, these like full stop, like bold proclamations. And, and I think that the, you know, I think the narrator... Um, has a bit, I think you've kind of incorporated that kind of texture. There are all of these terms in italics, right? Like, like we have to do better, like all of these like buzzwords, whereas if she's just kind of like, I mean, I guess there's like a sort of superiority, right? With the way that she's presenting how she views kind of like cultural discourse going on around her. Yeah. And I think you could just say that she's just in the wrong cultural discourse, right? And and mm. she, she is a blogger, so she works for a website that is sort of, in my mind, a combination of Vice, Gawker, Box, uh, Mike, and like any other one of these big sort of content companies. Yeah. And she sort of has to appeal and think about this this kind of population that she hates, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, at least like firmly believe that there are many other populations or many other readerships or audiences that can be found um, online and that you can totally just get trapped in your little bubble of just jargon and, and buzzwords and everybody is sort of saying the same thing over and over. And and one of the things that I think about when I'm online, particularly with writers is, is that I don't understand why you would want to just say the same thing that 20,000 other people are saying, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what what is the appeal of repeating, you know, using the word toxic a million times? Like, why, why does that, that appeal to a writer um, who I would think is sort of devoted to coming up with new ways to communicate old ideas right right and it happens I think with opinions and sort of ideas as well right like there there's sort of thesis statements that circulate at the same in the same way and I think the conversation we were talking about earlier the one where the narrator is talking to Nell and she's sort of pressing her to have a tearful moment about her sexual assault is a similar sort of she she wants her to have the thesis statement about her sexual assault that she understands Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a woman is supposed to have and I think that that's very frustrating and, and 
very interesting to me as as someone who is concerned about language and, and all this stuff. But does she think she's superior to it? I mean, there, she is superior to some things, right? Mm-hmm, like, I think mm-hmm. it's not. I wanted the book to very much stay within this milieu of sort of extremely online, like very well educated, creative. Uh, international types, right? Um, not right. everyone is a millennial, but it's mostly sort of people in their 20s to their 40s in the book. Right. I think within that realm, she's t- it's, she's totally within her right to feel superior to, ever, to people around her, right? Because she's supposed they're supposed to be her peers. <laughs> Speaking of Sheila Hetty, I think she has a line in How Should a Person Be that's something like, these are my contemporaries, like these are my fucking contemporaries. And like, I think about it all the time. <laughs> 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 well, that actually is a great segue into the other thing that I wanted to ask based on on that kind of other tangent I wanted to follow, which is I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I love that quote, that Rachel Cuss quote of, uh, you know, I, I don't I have I, I don't think that I firmly agree or disagree with it yet. I, but like the idea of like it's fake and fiction is fake. And what was the other word? Embarrassing. Fake and embarrassing. Um, so, but I, but I would love to talk more about what you see as a writer, what you see the value, what you see as the value of the more kind of autofiction approach where you are, um, you know, you're acknowledging that artifice a lot more. Um, and, and I've, I've read you say, I read an interview with you that, um, I think it was in Bomb maybe where, you, you know, that, that part of what you love about the novel is that it's by, by definition, it's fake, and we're all acknowledging it's fake, and we're going on that. Um, we're accepting that together, and kind of then going into this place of sort of suspended disbelief, and that's part of what um, part of kind of what its power is. So, so can you talk a little bit more about like what you think that um, what it gives it to to kind of add that other layer? Yeah, I think it's not essential. Like, I don't necessarily agree with Rachel Cross that it's fake and embarrassing, and I, I. But but I understand where she's coming from. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, I think for me, the reason that I did it is is because I'm making you know I'm making a sort of very explicit point about like how we see each other um, now and what the 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 possibility of googling and what the possibility of knowledge does to these sort of assumptions that we make about each other. Right. So um, I see I see I see myself using myself as like an example right because that's what's at hand and that's like mm. really the only ethical way that you can you can bring in the real world right it's just to sort of <laughs> sacrifice yourself on the author on the um altar of like truth but I think for a lot of people it's just an easier sort of more natural way to write which makes a lot of sense to me as well yeah yeah depending on what you want to write about um I think certainly there are ways in which it doesn't work, but um, if I'm writing about something that I have more or less experience that and that I am more or less familiar with, I don't know why I would try and, and transpose my general vibe onto something that is, is that I made up, right? Like that just seems sort of pointless. Right. I think there was a conversation a few years ago with uh, Emily Gold and Elisa Albert. And I think one of them said something like, well, I didn't make it up because what, there's no point. Like it, I already had the details at hand, right? You know, you could say that that's lazy or what's the difference if the character is a writer versus a musician, right? Like what's the difference 
I, I think probably a lot of writer novelists like will write a, a visual artist or a musician or something to sort of like translate the woes of writing life into something that's vaguely similar, but still different. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I too, I think it's, I think it's reductive to just kind of say, well, um, frankly, I, the idea that any kind of writing is lazy. I don't know. I feel like when I feel like maybe when I was like in my early 20s, I would have had a more militant stance about this. But now I'm just kind of like writing is hard and whatever kind of writing you want to do is great. You know? Yeah. And I also don't think that we have like a deficit of writing, you know, like especially fiction writing, like you should just write whatever you want. 5,000 people are going to buy it maybe. So you right. should just, <laughs> you should just do whatever you want. Right. Of course, there are other people who go on big research trips and write, write beautiful sort of highly detailed novels about things they previously knew nothing about. And that's great too. Spread the love with WMFA merch, items designed to spark creative vibes for you and the artists in your life. Shop at WMFAPodcast.com slash merch. That's WMFAPodcast.com slash M-E-R-C-H. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about you as a critic. And I imagine that like, I know, you know, you, you obviously have a reputation for being quite a fearless critic. So maybe this is a question that speaks more to my personal hangups than yours. But I would imagine that there would be a, a certain amount of trepidation than creating your own work. Oh, I mean, I always wanted to. So I think that, that whenever I've written criticism, I, I have always thought about my own book right in various ways to be clear I'm not saying that I don't think like I'm not saying like stay in your lane or anything like that I'm just thinking like oh, yeah. I would be like I would be haunted by the ghosts of all of my reviews like oh yeah but I I mean I'm I think that I uh am actually very proud of my reviews and this this sort of stances that I take and I think generally speaking I'm much more regretful um when I'm too soft <laughs> that sounds that sounds tough, I think, but um, I can't really imagine like doing one of these reviews, which I see all the time, which is just clearly like phoning it in and saying something is, you know, putting in one of these stupid adjectives, like luminous mm-hmm, blah blah mm-hmm, blah description mm-hmm. of the book. Powerful, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. It isn't actually very. The book isn't actually very good, and I would just feel really. Um, bad I think about that but but I think it does go back to what I was saying about reciprocity and criticism too which is that you know these are my these are my contemporaries so Mm -hmm. so I like have a standard for them that I hopefully apply that hopefully it's clear that I apply to myself right like I Mm -hmm. put a lot of thought into the book and I like put a lot of thought into how I interpret other people's books as well and I read them very carefully um which is not true, I think, of very many critics, which is quite shocking, but that's just how it is. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, there is sort of like, ugh, I wish that this weren't the case, but even if I had only written, ever written really nice reviews, I don't think I would be safe from people trying to say my novel was bad. They just like, you know, probably fewer would right. read it, <laughs> right? Right? Like it would, it would be less, it would just be a, a writer had written a debut novel, right? Instead of Right. This dramatic enfant terrible stuff that people keep trying to do. But, you know, it's fine. Like, I haven't written that many negative reviews. <laughs> right. <laughs> Only relative, <laughs> relatively speaking that I've written negative reviews. 
Well, and of course, those will get more attention. Yeah. yeah. But that's 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 what's interesting to me about social media, right? Like people think that the thing that they paid attention to is the only thing that there is. Right, right, right. And don't stop to consider that maybe the other stuff just, you know, that there's a bunch of stuff missing from their, what they're seeing, uh, which right. I think is super interesting. And I think that plays into the book as well, right? Like she has all this she's she's always talking all she has all this knowledge and she's very knowing but then in the end she gets totally fooled yeah i would love to um and and this is good because we come back to it kind of late in the conversation so we can also just like put a little like spoiler alert in there if anybody wants to skip but i would love to um talk about the ending kind of more directly based on what you had said really early in our conversation about kind of closing this loop for her and sort of how like, you know, what what comes back at the end sort of colors, you know, what we've come to understand about her and what we think that she's revealed to us. Can you kind of talk about how you see that those the, the end working with the whole? Yeah, well, I think so she is telling the story. So I wanted it to be clear and I make it sort of funny. I hope it's funny when I, the way that I I do this, but she is, she knows the whole story from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you can read it like she knows what's going to happen. She's not in the dark about it at all. It's taking place in the past tense. She's telling you now um, that this crazy thing has happened to her. Um, and I see her like, the beginning is she makes this discovery. Her boyfriend, who's been acting really weird, is a conspiracy theorist. He's got like a popular Instagram account where he posts conspiracy theory memes. She is like, I'm going to dump him um, and pl- plans to do it in this sort of diabolical way. She's she's like, I'm going to make it the perfect breakup. Like, I'm going to be the good one. I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to reveal that I have discovered his duplicity and it's going to be devastating. Uh, so she's like putting off dumping him basically. <laughs> And first spoiler, everyone, before she can break up with him, she goes to Women's March uh, in D.C. And while she's at the Women's March, he dies in a bicycle accident. (laughs) Um, And she gets this call from his mom, who she's never met. She doesn't know that much about him, um, even though they've been together for a year and a half. And they've had all these really great conversations. And they've had, you know, they've been in love, like real love. Uh, But she doesn't know that much about him. And his mom calls her. And she's like, Felix died in a bicycle accident. (laughs) And she doesn't really know what to do because she had sort of written off Felix, no pun intended, um, written him off as like a a horrible person, like a bad person, not not someone who could possibly be understood. And then she's like, oh, I was going to break up with him and now he's dead. (laughs) And I said, I can never break up with him. And also have this like horrible thing about him that I can't tell any of my friends because it's like too embarrassing um, that she was dating a conspiracy theorist and then she didn't break up with him and then he died. Uh, So she lives with this like bizarro secret and her friends are sort of like, don't you need to go to therapy? You need to like think about your feelings or whatever. And she's like, no, you don't understand. (laughs) You don't understand my complicated emotions. Um, It's impossible for you to understand my complicated emotions. Uh, So she basically, I see her as sort of like making herself inscrutable in the way that he was inscrutable. Right. And I think that they, she sees it and he, I would assume that he sees it this way as well, like as a reaction to this sort of oversimplified, like social media atmosphere that she lives in, where nobody is willing to do the sort of hard work of interpretation and everybody just wants, they want what they want their opinions handed to them in a sort of strident, obnoxious way. 
Um, so that by the end, she's gone on her, she's moved to Berlin where they first met. And then she is a path. She becomes like a liar and she does all these sort of fake personalities. And she always has this sort of fantasy, I think throughout the book of like someone finding her out. Right. Like, yeah. Seeing through her and sort of catching her in a lie, but nobody ever does. (laughs) Uh, Nobody ever does. Uh, And then at the end, and it's sort of this like tense, like uncomfortable, um, mood that's some it seems like something bad is going to happen but you have no idea really what it is and then another spoiler this is the big spoiler uh by the end she learns from her friend who has seen an article about it that he had actually faked his death and revealed himself at some party where he used to it was like an office party at his former um employer and so there were like a couple of like there's like a freeze article or something and like a New York Observer article about it, but but it's not a big news story or whatever that this like random art guy faked his death for probably clout, right? <laughs> like he did it as like a weird art project. And the thing that she's upset about is that she didn't see it, right? Like she she doesn't know. And then she looks back at what's happened and she sort of is suspicious about his mom calling her and like, was that really his mom? There are all sorts of like little weird things. And she's like, well, why didn't I try and look at like a death certificate? Like, why didn't I look for an obituary? Right. Like she goes to the Facebook page for his memorial, right? Where he's died. And she notices that all of the sort of names that are on the Facebook memorial page are kind of similar. And she just like didn't think about it, right? And I think that this is like, how we a lot of people go through the internet which is that we think that we know all sorts of things but we can miss really obvious stuff that's kind of right in front of our faces because we're used to having it sort of fed to us right by like google like googling or or whatever right so i I see the the plot being really important here um and i think in general, that the endings of books are really important. Uh, and I think here, obviously, it, it's it's crucial to sort of understanding this this character's um, experience and the sort of like points that I hope to make with the book. I also I also feel like, you know, with the very end where it's like he's like used her tweet. Oh. Like, yeah, I feel like there's also this like, I could be wrong, but I my interpretation too, on top of everything you just said was this like, he did it better than me too, you know? Exactly. Well, cause she's throughout the book, she's always sort of competitive with him in various ways. And she, yeah. she wants to move to Berlin in part because she wants to be a Berlin expat sort of better than Felix who like never learned any German and like never met anyone or did anything. Um, and she is sort of blind, blinded by her like desire to like dominate him in some way. Right. Right. Um, but yes, yeah, so at the end, she learns uh, her friend is like, so did you hear the news? Are you okay? And she's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, Felix faked his death. So then she, she emails Felix basically in a, having a fit and getting drunk with her roommate. Uh, and she emails him and is like, well, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> what, the, what the fuck? And he emails her back that um, he thought that she knew. And then it turns out he lives in Berlin, which she sort of figures out looking at his Instagram, not by asking him directly. Then at the end, she runs into him in the street and she wants like some kind of closure from him, but she knows that the game doesn't work like that. And she can't like demand some like closure. She can't be like, what is your problem? Why are you doing this? She can't get some big explanation. So she decides to like ask, she thinks she has like one question to ask him. 
So she asks him why he plagiarized one of her tweets for one of his like social media posts. <laughs> um, and he, at that moment, he just like knows that he's won, right? Because he's made right. him, like care very pathetically about this totally banal, stupid thing. And the and at, this is the end of the book. And she's like obsessed about how she has to say the sentence. That's one of my tweets over and over. Right. <laughs> Right. Yes. Um, and he just wins, right? Like you can't you can't beat him because he doesn't care the way that she cares. <laughs> it's a very I think it's very true. Yeah, yeah. Um sorry for all the spoilers and like the bad plot summary. Um yeah. I've obviously never had to describe the end of the book before because of the spoiler thing, but No, that's great. That's fine. <laughs> Um, well, I know we're running out of a little bit of time. I want to do like a really abrupt subject change because sure. I would be remiss to not ask about this. Um, we're both from West Virginia. No way. Where are you from? Yeah, I'm from Morgantown. Oh my God. That's great. I'm from Hurricane. You might know. Hurricane. Um, oh yeah. Oh, I know Hurricane. And it's funny when I saw it in your bio, I was just like, of course, as we pronounce it, Hurricane. Yeah. Like yeah. we say like, and even in Morgan, like if you were talking about a hurricane, we would say hurricane, Yeah, but the course. town, the town is hurricane. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and so like, I, I know, you know, that doesn't necessarily come up, you know, it, Appalachia and West Virginia is really central to my writing. It seems maybe less central to yours. So maybe this isn't like a really, you feel like this isn't really a fruitful area for you, but I would love to just talk a little bit if there's anything there about like how, you know, sort of being from West Virginia has any impact on, on your work? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what it was like. I imagine Morgantown is a little bit more lively than Hurricane just because the university is there, right? Like I haven't spent that much time there. My brother went to college there, but I have only been there like a couple of times. Uh -huh. um, but in Hurricane, it's sort of like, it's between Charles, it's between Charleston and Huntington, which are the two biggest cities, quote unquote, in West Virginia, but they both have like 50,000 people or something. Right. <laughs> So at various points in my life, like there wasn't a coffee shop, there wasn't a movie theater, like you had to drive half an hour to go to the movies or, or whatever, which is not the most rural place ever. And it's not really, I don't think of it as rural, but I, it's not really a suburb because it's not really attached to anything. Right. I don't know how it is for you, but I feel like it like let me become like a, a, my own person, like in a sort of mm. vacuum almost because I, mm. when I was in high school or maybe even before, like I just didn't and I wasn't a misfit like I wasn't like despised or anything but I just like didn't fit in and I always like wanted to leave and I totally. think that it made me very comfortable with like kind of rejecting whatever is around me in a sort of you know not not in a yeah. I'm not like I'm not like a punk you know I don't want to like yeah yeah, yeah 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 my rebellious nature it's just more that I am quite good at like interacting with things that I really disagree with and right. resisting sort of um, group like consensus. It is interesting. And I think it's more interesting to me in ways that it's not, people always want it to be, be like you're rural and you have an accent or something, but you don't have an accent either. Um, I have a little bit of an accent, but, but recently an interviewer, I won't say who, but recently an interviewer like started our interview by saying that readers, I mean, listeners might not be able to tell this because you can't hear it, but Lauren is from West Virginia. <laughs> and I was like, what am oh I God. supposed to say? <laughs> what do you say? It's very yeah, strange. No. Um, uh, 
particularly because I do have an accent sometimes when I'm very like drunk or angry. Uh, yeah, totally. Or if I'm home or like my best friend oh, from yeah. Boone County, if I'm talking to her, I get like real drawly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it just comes and goes. And it makes me actually very sympathetic to people who have what, what people say are faked accents. Right? Like, mm. I'm like, no, I just changed my, my voice is very unstable. I don't know about yours, mm. but mine changes a lot. Um, so sometimes people will like move to the UK and then come back and have a weird accent. I'm like, yeah, that makes total sense yeah. because you want to, f- you subconsciously probably like change your, vo- your voice to fit in with people. Totally. And in all these little subtle ways, like, I feel like the big thing in like, comparing to like British and I feel like it's like your, your emphasis changes. Like, it's not just like, oh, I'm starting to use this weird slang that I've never used before. It's like, there's so much rhythm to it. And especially like, if you're a writer, it makes perfect sense. Like you're so attuned to that. Absolutely. And I don't, you know, I, whenever I'm in Europe for a long time, I always have like a weird rhythm or something or something. Cause I, I feel like my voice is very malleable. Um, yeah. And then when I come back, I feel like I sound more West Virginian than, than ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. So you write a lot about West Virginia. I do. So I, I like, am very interested in place as a concept, um, and like place as it pertains to identity. I think because like West Virginia, you know, I don't know like what your family backstory is, but like, you know, it's a place that people have deep, deep, deep generational roots in. And I don't, I'm literally the only person in my family that was born in West Virginia. And I lived there until I moved to New York and went to grad school. But so like, so I kind of, you know, I completely agree with everything you said, like about feeling like, you know, not, not at all like outcast or like anything like that, but just like, oh, this is not the place for me. And these are not necessarily, these people are not all the people for me. And I can't wait to leave. And then I left and then I became kind of obsessed with it. Um, and so like that idea of it from a distance is very interesting to me and sort of like that, that hold that keeps you like, you know, I know I don't want to live there, but I, I identify so strongly with it. And like, what does that mean? And how do you parse that out? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think too, like I resist like using it to my advantage in mm-hmm. some way, because mm-hmm. I think that you can really be like West Virginia. I know what it's like, um, I think probably the people who are interested in that kind of narrative would not like what I have to say about West Virginia. <laughs> um, but I don't want to like make it seem like I'm, you know, emphasizing my rural background. And right. I, uh, my daddy had a like right. had a business, you know, like a shotgun yeah. or whatever. Like right. that's not what it. You know, my experience of West Virginia is like there's a Taco Bell at, at both right. sides, you know, to the yeah. east end. Right. And like, when I was 17, the Target came and we got a Starbucks finally. So exactly, like it's like I got a Starbucks access to Starbucks when I was like 16 years old. Um, yeah, yeah. I I think it's more complicated to to describe it than it seems, right? But everybody's always like, "You should write a West Virginia book," and I'm like, "You don't, you don't want that." Yeah, <laughs> not what you want to hear about, actually. Um, but you know, I like a challenge, so who knows? <laughs> um. So the last question is something I always like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, um, which is, "What does creative satisfaction look like for you right now?" Oh my God, I have no idea. I really have a fantasy of like only working on one thing and not having to, and having like six months to do it and not doing anything else during that time and not like having to worry about 
deadlines for little articles that I'm writing and, and like having to email people and things like this. Right. And, and really just, and also having a set period of time, like I wouldn't want it to go on forever, but I really have this like very basic, obvious fantasy of like only having one thing to do and then doing it. Um, which maybe says a lot about um, both my schedule and also like my ability to do things, uh, which is low. <laughs> you need a residency. Um, yeah, I do need a res. I do need a residency. Um, but I also, in terms of what is creative satisfaction, I don't know. I feel very satisfied with this novel, actually, which is is good. It's good to feel creative. And I'm so glad that you say that because I feel like so often we there's this you know there's such a mythology around like like writers hating what they write and like I think it's really nice to celebrate the moments where you're like you know what I'm proud of this yeah it does what I wanted it to do and I really wanted it to do like a a set of specific things and I still agree with the sort of ideas in it and I still think that it's sort of view of the world is right so I think that that's like the best that I can hope for I love that You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.